people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. Uh, my name is Sam. This is Alex. Tell us what we're talking about today, Alex. Today we're going by uh, Nestor and Bronkowski um, from the group uh, Division 161. Um, and we're going to talk about the far right in Poland, fascism in Poland. Um, it's going to be a ba- kind of a basic grounding interview, um, you know, in- introduce the topic um, to you, the audience, and get into a few of the links with the UK and why, why we should know about it, why we should care about it as well. Um, so Nesta Bronkowski, welcome. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, so just to get us kicked off, um, what is D161? Why did you decide to found the group? Division 161 is a kind of informal group of uh, Polish-speaking anti-fascists residing in UK Um, and it has been it has been formed to combat uh, specifically Polish far-right within UK Uh, as we notice it has been uh, at the time when we formed the group, it has been really growing and it has been really gaining a lot of traction in certain places and uh, getting very, very active. Uh, so this was kind of our response because we noticed obviously that like UK anti-fascist movement didn't really uh, didn't really know and understand what they're dealing with, obviously because of language barrier and, and, and things like that. And so a lot of things went under the radar. Uh, for our UK comrades and uh, yeah and as members of as as kind of like people that were involved in anti-fascist movement both in Poland and UK we thought it was it was a it was a good idea to start kind of task force so to speak what is going under the radar so what what are what are UK anti-fascists missing I mean, I don't think they're missing much now, but it, back in the day when uh, when this whole thing started, there were a lot of a lot of Polish far right groups. Uh, well, not only Polish; there were like Hungarian, Czech, Slovak, Polish. You know, a, a lot of Eastern European groups um, that were uh, forming links with UK uh, fascist movement, uh, but also doing stuff on their own. And a lot of these things, because they were directed to Polish-speaking community and within Polish-speaking community, that's why they were kind of going under the radar. Uh, I think I think uh, first kind of big thing was that stabbing in Tottenham by uh, mm-hmm. during one of these like street festivals. I think uh, it was uh, where uh, it first first came to people's attention that okay, there is actually. A uh, bit, bit of a serious problem here. Obviously, like there's been a tradition, uh, particularly since Poland joined the EU, but also stretching back before that, of uh, general societal-wide racism against Polish people uh, in the UK and, in particular, on the far right. So, what kind of links was the Polish far right or the Polish kind of fascist elements in the UK able to make with the far right that kind of got around this general racism towards uh, Polish people? I think the main uh, point that you know was connecting British far right and the Polish far right was obviously uh, hatred towards Islam and you know non-white migrants. Uh, so you know at, at the beginning Polish people were seen as a you know oh bloody immigrants coming here stealing our jobs you know doing all the you know 
we're getting paid lower wages because we don't mind because we're going to go back to Poland anyway. But at some point, you know, when the migration migration crisis started in 2014, uh, I think they found like a common enemy, which was obviously, you know, brown and black people. And there were parts of it that were already before that. So like in in a, in, in more strictly neo-Nazi movement, there definitely there was a lot of traction, like Polish blood and honor and Polish Nazi movement was always very strong and very active. Um, and they have already had formed a lot of links with their, uh, you know, with their Nazi comrades in other countries, and that included UK. So when all the new new European Union countries joined in two thousand four, I think at some point the British Nazis were faced with a bit of situations like, well, okay, these guys are coming over here and they're immigrants, but they're also really well organized. They're big guys. They know how to fight. They've got links. They've got network. Uh, maybe we should kind of start working with them. I, I still remember article. I think it was in Stormfront or, or one of these, you know, shitty fucking websites that uh, basically it, it was like this pseudo historical article explaining how Slav- Slavs are really Aryans. It's just Hitler didn't know and it was all just terrible misunderstanding. So they were just literally trying to come up with some sort of science to to you know oh we actually all we all actually good and this was just yeah this was all just terrible misunderstanding adolf hitler just didn't know and if he if... Uh, i mean that that's 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 the thing about race science it's literally just made up yeah yeah it's yeah. not no basis <laughs> yeah. you just imagine something new a new reality they had like science. it was like a long article they had like maps and shit and just like you know maps showing uh, movement oh of, mov- movement of peoples and nations and stuff it was ridiculous but yeah so this was before 2013 uh 14 this was that and then what bronkowski already said that you know, after that, it was a common hatred of Islam and uh, brown people. I, I suppose there's also a distinction here between um, different types of far-right politics. So you've got this civic nationalist politics, which sees, like, Polish migrants as a threat to British workers, whatever you want to, whatever racist narrative you want about it. And then you've got this neo-Nazi narrative, which is like, these are our white brothers too, and we must accept them and form links with our white neo-Nazi brothers. So it's a, an interesting quirk between the, the two things. Absolutely. There was uh, there was certainly a very, very close cooperation with uh, National Action. Specifically, there was, a, there was a Polish group called National Rebirth of Poland, um, I mean, it was like a UK chapter. It, it, it was uh, it, it is a group in Poland, and they had the UK chapter that was working very, very closely with uh, National Action. Uh, you know, providing kind of foot soldiers for like majority of the staff until uh, you know until they met some unfortunate accidents and kind of that stopped. Uh, there were also a few instances of uh, Polish people joining EDL marches. <laughs> Which uh, some people find it confusing, especially on the DL side. What did they? How do they? How do they respond? I don't remember. I think I've, I, I think it was uh, most of the time they didn't they didn't meet like uh, outright hostility. It was a bit of bemusement, or it was just like, yeah, like you might be immigrants, but at least you're not Muslims, so that's kind of okay. Um, yeah, I suppose it's similar, like similar vibe to the gays against Sharia thing. Like, yeah. Oh, we are homophobic, but you can be on our march, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, I suppose Poland has been caught up in the wave of 
um, kind of reactionary governments being elected into power in the mid early to mid 2010s. Um, we're talking here about the Law and Justice Party, which has been in power since 2015. Oh yeah. How would you characterize them? Uh, how would you characterize them politically? And why do you think they've had such like longevity? Interesting question about longevity. Uh, politically, I would uh, they're, they're kind of difficult to classify exactly. So they are a mixture of far right, conservative, but also like religious fundamentalists. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard to find exact equivalent in UK, you know, um, that you could compare it to because they got like elements of different different uh, organizations mixed in and, it, and and it's a big very big party so you got kind of different fractions within it as well um but as to longevity you know they uh, it's a mixture of what well, political opposition being absolutely uh, just having absolutely nothing to offer um them doing kind of like few very very good populist moves like uh giving people benefits for uh the famous program 500 plus which meant 500 slots which is the equivalent of 100 quid which is you know quite a lot in poland and uh, it was like 500 for each kid you have and and and, and things like that so you know which which genuinely help people on the on the, on the you know in the bottom of the society so they got very um they got a chunk of a very loyal electorate from that um yeah and just the fact that you know poland poland is in big parts very deeply conservative catholic very often fundamentalist country so that you know their their politics speak to a lot of people it's also worth mentioning uh, you know, there's a distinction between uh, Western and Eastern part of Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 kind of like known that, let's say, Western part of Poland is a bit more liberal and a bit more wealthy, mm. while the Eastern part is a bit more conservative and a bit more poor. Uh, it's not always a case, but it's a general rule. Uh, it's, you know, some people, do, there's like lots of uh, components that comes into that. It's also historical. Also, the previous government before 2010, it was also like a centre-right, uh, very free, pro-free market party. Uh, so lots of people obviously were suffering uh, hardly under you know the rule because you know the working conditions were poor, the wages were very low. Uh, lots of the you know pri- you know lots of things got privatised. You know they were like literally like a big children of neoliberalism. So when the Law and Justice Party came into power. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, give you some free money. People are like, oh, yeah, this doesn't sound too bad, you know. And some of the conditions, like, you know, working conditions has improved. And I think that's one big thing that, you know, stands behind the Law and Justice Party and its longevity. They also adapt. So, you know, they, they're very populistic. So at some point they are going to be like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we are pro-European. You know, we want to be in you. But once the EU gonna tell them like, oh, you know, you can't really do that. This is this is unlawful. They're gonna be like, oh yeah, we hate the EU now. And people are like, okay, yeah, we all hate the EU now. I mean, you can also, I suppose, you can also see it in the in the contemporary example of the situation in Ukraine, um, where you know this very anti-migrant party, pro-borders party, suddenly is inviting in um, you know millions of Ukrainians as they should, obviously, um, and this kind of switch. Once it's a different kind of migrant that's coming in, the whole politics changes. 
yeah uh, th that's a good that's a good comparison and and uh, and why they did it is a, is a separate discussion which you know we, which we can have uh also i think the the big part of longevity is that they are incredibly um incredibly skilled at building myths around themselves and you know a famous plane with the polish government that went down uh Oh yes, okay. I mean they they build a whole mythos around it, you know, and this is this is like uh, there's still a lot of people that believe the Russians do. Do you quickly want to explain that for our audience who might not be aware of the plane? It's also a great story. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I forgot which year. Well, Brunkowski, do you remember what year was it exactly? I think it's 2010, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. 2010, 2009. You can Google it later. Oh wait, someone is googling it now. Um, <laughs> anyway, there was a there was a a, a commemoration a, a commemoration event going on in Russia in a place called uh, Katyn, which is a place where a lot of uh, Polish soldiers and officers of the Polish army had been uh, executed by the Soviet army in 1939 and 1940. We're talking about thousands of people, you know, like a proper, proper organized mass murder kind of thing. Um, so, uh, there were like, yeah, um, annual, there was annual, annual commemoration of that. And, um, at this time, uh, law and justice went over the, the, and the prime minister, was there already Donald Tusk, who is their arch enemy from the more the neoliberal party, and they were angry at the fact that he was already there, and they were getting delayed because of the fog. And basically, they've been they've been told that um, they can't land; they they will have to land on a different, you know, basically, at a different airfield in order to um, in order to land safely. And uh, of course, no one knows exactly what happened, but um, they have proceeded with landing in unsafe conditions. As a result of it, the, the whole jet crashed, and, the, and on the board of jet, there was a large part of the Polish government, basically, and it was like, you know, mainly the, the ruling party, um, one of the Kaczynski twins and loads of other officials, plus obviously the poor crew and all, all that, and, you know, everyone died, obviously. And um, the, that became a big, big part of the, like the national mythology, which is absolutely crazy because the, the Kaczynski, who was a president at the time, he has done absolutely nothing of significance. And you know, it, it's almost you can say his most significant act in the history was coming down, <laughs> crashing on a plane. Um, and Damn. yeah, they built the whole mythology around it. Obviously, a lot of the, the more conspirational-minded uh, people on in the in that party and on the far right they said you know Russians did it obviously the, the, until now they're like now there was an explosion and then you know the famous the famous footage from the crash site where basically it's the footage where you can't see almost anything and and and, and the famous line of like in 10 seconds you can clearly hear shots which was supposed to be the the Russian Secret Service just finishing off the people that that um, survived, you know. Anyway, they built a whole mythology around it, and that was incredibly useful for them. Like, it, it, you know, it, it's it's going to sound very harsh, but it was like the biggest gift they could have asked for. We we often spoke spoke on the show about how World War Two is 
becoming less and less relevant to UK politics and, and like an anti-fascist movement that mobilises on the basis of us defeating the Nazis is not going to work today. And yet, in the past month or so, I have been sorely uh, kind of disrupted in my view about World War II not being so relevant, thinking about, of course, the war in Ukraine and um, Putin's very deliberate invocation of the Great Patriotic War and denazification, all this stupid stuff. Mm. And it, similarly in Poland, it seems like the World War II plays a big part in like kind of a national mythos. And in one of my classes at university, I we were watching this kind of Polish nationalist propaganda in which Poland was trapped between the forces of fascism on one side and the forces of Soviet communism on the other, and it was being crushed. and And this was kind of the um, kind of uh, part of a, like an independence story that was being told about Poland and about breaking away from the Soviet Union. And it seems like to me, looking from the in from the outside, Poland's still seducing this kind of past. Do you think that's an accurate characterization? How how do you think um, Poland is moving beyond um, these kind of narratives, or are they moving beyond these, these kind of narratives? Mm. Well, I think the whole thing started where you know, if you look at the history of Poland, it started way earlier. So between uh, 1772 and 1795, there were partitions of Poland uh, by the Prussia, Russian Empire and the Austria-Hungarian Empire. So since uh, 1795, Poland ceased to exist. Basically, it got uh, it disappeared from the maps of, of, of the world. Uh, and lots of Polish people were obviously uh, oppressed, you know, if they wanted to speak their own language. So... Each country like Russia was trying to, you know, make people speak Russian, Prussia, obviously German. Uh, Austro-Hungarian Austria, Austria uh, Empire was slightly a bit more easygoing on Polish people. But, you know, obviously they were still like op- oppressing them. Yeah. So Poland disappeared for 123 years till 1918 when they gained the independence after the First World War. Uh, you know, we had 20 few years of peace and we got, you know, partitioned again, basically by, you know, uh, Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Well, I mean, there was so, there was Polish Bolshevik war that, in the meantime oh, as well. Oh, yeah, obviously, 1922. <laughs> and yeah, obviously, after the war, you know, we got under the, you know, Soviet-Russian rule. And this is, you know, obviously, by this is another episode when we were occupied by the foreign forces, you know. So since 1990, people are like, oh, yeah. Poland was always being, you know, fucked over by Russia and by Germany. So, you know, everyone's an enemy and everyone's against Poland. So, yeah, that's what government's using, you know, even even till today. You know, how does that how does that contribute to the thing you were mentioning earlier, Nesta, which is about the uh, relative acceptance of Ukrainian refugees? Like, is that still the kind of the the underlying motivation there? I think. I I think the you know part of the fact of acceptance acceptance of Ukrainian refugees is the fact that they're fighting against Russia, like as in Ukraine mm-hmm. is fighting against Russia. But partly is because, like people, like people in Poland responded very instantly to to that and just very spontaneously uh, to the to the to war and to resulting huge refugee crisis uh like you know completely unprecedented in 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 our history like modern history um and and i think government just realized that um actually like that like they they better they better support that because it's going to cost yeah. cost them big time um polish polish right wing is definitely until that moment was uh, a rapidly anti-ukrainian 
uh, that also comes from the Polish history, um, the, well, history between Poland and Ukraine and Belarus as well. Uh, with I know nothing about that, so it's, obviously I, I, yeah, I'm aware of the uh, the Soviet, you know, I'm aware of the Soviet Union, I'm aware of Nazi Germany, but I I know nothing about Polish Ukrainian it's, politics. So yeah, that. it's 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 a, it's a kind of long and very convoluted history, but you know, la- large parts of what is Ukraine and Belarus were effectively colonized by by Poland in kind of like uh, like 16th and 17th century and so on. Uh, before that even um, and then after Poland regained independence some of the lands obviously had a big part of the a big part of the Ukrainian population Belarusian population the Ukrainian kind of uh, nationalism was just well nationalist patriotism and then that idea of Ukrainian nationality was in the ascendance so obviously there was a, there was gonna be a lot of conflict um, over who, who that city belongs to and who that area belongs to and all these. And um, so there was a very serious repression from the, from the side of the Polish government, but there was also very, very um, aggressive resistance from the part of the nationalist underground, Ukrainian nationalist underground. And then during the Second World War, Ukrainian, um, well, um, uh, Ukrainian nationalist organization and Ukrainian insurgent army led by Bandera, they uh, they committed uh, well what can be pretty much ascribed as as genocide against Polish population in in certain areas that they wanted to, you know, that they imagined gonna gonna be Ukrainian, and their idea of making them Ukrainian was um, uh, basically getting rid of all the other population. Uh, by by killing them or making them leave uh of course there was also um a lot of a lot of uh horrible anti-ukrainian acts from the part of like uh from the more far right part of the polish resistance as well and then after the second world war communist government was uh you know uh committing terrible crimes against ukrainian population whether they were involved in the nationalist uprisings or not uh you know kind of collective collective responsibility so yeah this is this is obviously like a very simplified simplified version but at least you get the you get the gist of it there, there's no love lost i see and and that's all shifted since the since the invasion yes well it's as i said it's like you know what what's happening in ukraine i think moved so many people that even those there are still some uh right wingers in the government that kind of uh are very vocal about um about you know being anti-ukrainian and and, and all that but let, let's just say this is not incredibly popular position at the moment i, I think that the reason why why polish government like as as nesto mentioned uh, most of the help that came you know towards the refugees from ukraine was uh was grassroots was organized by people like government had had nothing to do it you know and most of the things are still run by volunteers uh the, so obviously now, nowadays Polish government is saying like, oh, this is our success, you know, this is what we as a nation has done, you know, to help the Ukrainian nation, which is obviously untrue. On the other hand, you know, don't forget that a few months earlier we had a, you know, big crisis on the Belarusian border yeah. when people from uh, Syria or from, you know, uh, 
Middle East or North African countries were trying to escape the war and trying to get into, you know, onto the European Union land were basically stopped and pushed back into a forest where they probably died or getting tortured by Belarusian soldiers. Uh, so, not, you know, obviously it was a big thing and it was all over the media that, you know, Poland's being anti-refugee. So now they can use refugee, you know, Ukrainian refugees as like, oh, look at us, you know, we're welcoming everyone. But, you know, the whole topic about what's happening on the Belarusian border has, you know, went silent. And people are still there. People are still trying to, you know, cut through the river. They're still trying to, you know, go across the fence. And they're still getting pushed back, back to the Belarus. And the situation of the migrants on the border obviously got much worse before the after after the war started because no one's paying attention to them anymore. One of the um, kind of, um, I think, big calendar events in, in the past few years for the European far right has been the Polish Independence Day marches. <laughs> um, and I particularly was kind of drawn my attention to it now, knowing it's been happening for a while, but in 2018, Generation Identity did a big visit over there, and they ended up getting exposed by uh, Joe Mulhall from Hope Not Here. And he did he his first chapter of his book is about going on this Independence Day march and seeing all these people who he'd been um, monitoring on all on the plane with him. How has that march become such a calendar event for European far right? It has been, you know, it has been a, a very big event for uh, for the Polish far right for many years already, and it's been growing and growing, and especially since um, I, I think there was like combination combination of of factors that that contributed to the fact that it grew so much. But there was also there was definitely a, a, um, a large injection of money behind the far right activity in Poland as well. Um, money from where? Uh, different places. Uh, you know, some of some of it, it's impossible to say exactly where it came from. You can only kind of guess. Um, there was uh, possibly for, possibly from Putin. There's there was some. Well, not like directly from Putin, but you know, from sure. <laughs> uh, we just Venmoing. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mental shortcut we're using. <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, yeah. There was definitely some. Like, there was there was there's definitely some signs that there were Russian money involved, and there were there were couple of um, couple of far right millionaires that decided to put money in as well in the in the movement. Uh, but for whatever reason, it started growing and it started being bigger and bigger. And pretty much every year there was a, um, every year there was a riot with the cops. Um, almost like, you know, it, it was almost like a ritual kind of, uh, thing that at some point they would start fighting with cops and it was huge. Um, I think the big, the, the big, uh, the big success of the march was attracting, Polish football hooligans, who for many years weren't really attending in mass, and then there was a very, very directed propaganda to them that um, very focused propaganda on on the stadiums and football groups and stuff that really worked, and uh, and and then they started they started attending in really really big groups. Obviously, you know, football hooligans love a bit of a fight with cops as well, and. If you can do all of that and under slogans of defending the motherland and all that, then then what's 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 the what could be that you know? 
uh, and there were there were there were like you know whole whole trips organized by different fascist groups from different countries as the event was getting bigger and bigger um and you know it was always very spiky so it was a kind of guaranteed you know guaranteed a great day out for these guys you know and a great way to link up and there was usually some sort of uh patriotic gig before uh day before you know and uh yeah that's 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 what that's what attracted so many people from abroad so when you say so it's really interesting that the football hooligans would come in later um so for i guess from a uk perspective there's a kind of assumption that football hooligans will form quite uh, a lot of the uh like normal far right definitely like the fla and the dfla were explicitly organized by you know football uh, associations of various sorts um lots of people in the edl were also kind of involved in football hooliganism so who are the people who are not the football hooligans who were there before are they more explicitly kind of neo-Nazi groups or like organized fascists or like who is forming this, this group? Neo-Nazi, neo-Nazi nationalist groups. It was always like a bit of a coalition of the of the groups. So it, it was mainly organized by uh, uh, by groups that would call themselves the National Radical, which in Poland means, you know, far right, but not Nazi because of the history. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. You know... Essentially, if the Hitler didn't, if Hitler didn't attack Poland, they would be fine with Hitler. But since Hitler attacked Poland, then then they're not fine with Hitler. So basically, that's right. again yes. the the short version. Um, so these these were the guys that were organizing the marches, and at some point, basically every year uh, there was more and more serious resistance organized against them. And at some point, they were I think they were close to breaking basically. And this is when they made a big push the stadiums basically they were like look antifa is mess- messing up everything for us we we've got to do something with that you guys got to defend poland you know from the from the bolshevik invasion um as for football hooligans yes they are far right but apart from few crews in poland that are very specifically neo nazi most of them are actually far right but more on the surface as in they are far right, but they're not active. They're involved in their football hooligan stuff, and they're involved in organized crime, and they're just kind of paying, mostly paying lip service to far right politics. That's interesting. And are those neo-Nazi groups? Are they mostly the descendants of collaborations, collaborators? Because I said, for example, in in France, um, lots of people like uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and um you know people who kind of form the core of the french far right are the descendants of or directly involved in either french colonialism or in uh, uh descendants of people who are involved in the vichy regime during the second world war and the same is true in, in greece for example lots of people in golden dawn are direct descendants of people who are involved in uh you know uh, involved in the nazi occupation there so like what is the relationship of those neo-nazi groups to nazism no, we didn't. We never had any collaboration government in Poland, so uh, right, so yeah. so it's not connected to that at all. It was just kind of the movement that started in the eighties and and in the nineties. You know, when the blood and honor started getting big, this this became big in Poland as well. So um, so is that as as a form of extreme anti communism? Yes. Yeah, I wondered how much um, the Catholic Church. Is playing what? What role the Catholic Church is playing here in Poland as a kind of r- almost radicalizing 
force within Polish society. I'm thinking particularly of this kind of evocation of gender ideology, the kind of attacks on abortion and this, these, these kind of things. Um, is the church involved in this? How is the church connected to, is the church connected to uh, the Lauren Gusses party and the far right in general? I, ca- I can hear Bronkowski smiling, so... Have I, have I asked the wrong question? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 a very, it's a very good question, I think. Uh, again, you have to uh, look back in the history. So uh, when Poland was obviously under the Soviet regime... Damn, can I just say, uh, by the way, that the main... my, my yeah. kind of referral at the beginning of this interview to World War II was so naive. You were going back to the 1600s and the 1700s. And all... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really showed me up right it's now. All about the, the nar- it's all about the narrative, you know, <laughs> that, you know people in Poland are building. <clears throat> so, yeah, when, when we speak about the Catholic Church, uh, obviously, you know, Soviet, uh, Soviet Union was uh, explicitly anti-religious and anti-church. At the beginning, you know, obviously. Uh, so one of the main political forces, was well, in political, but social forces in Poland, uh, who was standing up against the communists was the Catholic Church. Uh, that also came in hand with election of the, you know, one and the only Saint Polish Pope, yeah, John Paul II. Uh, he became like an icon and the hero for the Polish nation, uh, even though he hasn't done much apart from uh, covering up the you know, molestation of little children in different churches. But, you know, that's a different topic. Um, so, yeah, obviously, lots of people were attending attending masses and church really, you know, pushed towards the independence of Poland from the Soviet Union and, uh, and, 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 the, and, the, and the, you know, Russian communism. Uh, so after the 1990, when the Social Democratic Party came into power, they had to make a kind of deal with the Catholic Church because Catholic Church held so much power. Uh, they basically had no choice. That's when, for example, the abortion uh, abortion ban came into the into into, the, into its place. Uh, basically, you know, for the Social Democratic Party to you know like get support from the Catholic Church, they had to make uh, like a little deal saying, "Oh yeah, we're not gonna make abortion fully legal." It's gonna be just, you know, allowed if the, you know, uh, the the child has been conceived, you know, by, you know, rape, or if if there is like some specific disease or genetic, you know. Oh my god, my brain, <laughs> brain today. Basically, it's been like only allowed in certain circumstances. So if you if you if you look further, uh, you know the. For example, the previous government was called Civic uh, Platform, which is like center-right. They were trying to be a bit more pro-European and a bit more liberal in certain cases. Uh, that's where the law law and justice used uh, Catholic Church as a, as a weapon. They weaponized basically the religion against, you know, the center-right party saying, oh, yeah, every, you know, oh, they're communist, you know, they want, uh, they want to abort children. Uh, they want to allow the gay marriages, you know, which is like against anything that Catholic Church, you know, any Catholic Catholic teachings, you know. Uh, how could you do it? You know, we got Polish Pope, you know. This is like everything against what our country stood up, you know, over the communist regime. Um, and there was also a very famous uh, radio station in Poland called uh, Radio Maria. Well, there still is. Which is, yeah, there, there still is. Uh, it's run by uh, very rich, 
priest uh, called Tadeusz Rydzyk. Uh, so basically this radio station became <laughs> kind of like a propaganda tube for the Law and Justice Party. They also have a, they also, uh, have a TV. So lots of things, you know, obviously went through there, but also lots of uh, priests, you know, during the masses were, you know, trying to convince elderly generation to vote for the Law and Justice Party. And they were making like funny stories about uh, gender ideology, saying that, oh yeah, you know, there's a thing called gender and what they want to do, they want to make the boys wear dresses or skirts. And this is scary, you know, this abnorm abnormal. I would go. I would. I would also say that you know, Catholic Church in Poland historically had a massively supporting role um, uh, for the far right in the thirties when Polish far right movement was huge. Um, Catholic Church was uh, like one of the most essential foundations of it, and it was a huge hotbed of anti-Semitism. So you know, these these traditions continue. What was the basis of the the far right in the nineteen thirties? Like, what was it trying to achieve, apart from anti-Semitic stuff? Well, this was the huge thing. Yeah, getting rid of the Jews from Poland that was like one of the one of the biggest uh, programs. Which is which is what I'm saying. It's like if you know if Hitler didn't invade Poland, like these the, these guys would be volunteering to be guards in camps. Like, I have absolutely no doubt about it. Um, yeah, this is this is um, the the plan to send the Jews to Madagascar. That's that was right? one of the things. Yeah, well, yeah one of the, one of the possible plans. Yeah. But there were there were loads of other plans. Um, so yeah, uh, it, of course, you know, like with all fascist movements, strong strong country, uh, you know, strong country, strong army, getting rid of all political opposition. Of course, anything left wing, it was a was a mortal enemy. The communist movement in Poland was was tiny, really, but socialist movement was huge, and that was always that was socialist movement in Poland uh, was taking an active part in independence struggle when Poland was still occupied. Uh, whereas Polish nationalist movement, surprise, surprise, was actually mainly helping Russia by combating socialists, combat, combating like the pro-independent socialists. Hang on, I'm slightly confused there. So the, 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 the hang on, <laughs> the, 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 far, the Polish far right in the 1930s. Yeah. Was, 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 well, 1920s, 1930s? When, what, what decade are we talking about? Both? Uh, when, when they were pro-Russian, it was before Poland regained independence in the 30s. So before 18? Yeah. Before 1918. Right, okay. And then, of course, that means they're also, of course, before the Soviet Union. That was what was confusing me. I, I, I wasn't sure why there was a there was an anti <laughs> an anti Russian communist movement in the Poland in the nineteen thirties. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, great. No, sorry about that. It's it's a complicated part of the history. You know, it's very hard to kind of explain it in in short. May I just cut in quickly? Uh, you know, when, when, when Nestor mentioned the that probably if Poland wouldn't be invaded by Germany, you know, Polish Polish people and the Polish Church would be you know volunteering to be. Uh, the guards in the camps. Well, the good example is Slovakia. You know, Slovakia was basically a client state of uh, Nazi Germany, and you know, the main person who was, uh, you know, the main the main person who was behind Slovaks during those times was uh, Josef Tiso, who was basically a Roman Catholic uh, priest. Mm. 
And as we know, uh, you know, he wasn't one of the nicest people, and you know, Slovak Slovakians were responsible for for you know lots of murders. And Josef Tisa was known for like torturing the prisoners himself. So you know, this this, this is when you know we coming to thirties and you know nineteen thirty and forty, and Catholic Church being like very oblivious or you know sympathetic towards Nazi Germany. <laughs> So you mentioned it briefly, like Antifa opposition to the Independence Day march and, and the need to bring in um, football hooligan groups in order to kind of counter this. And we, have, we haven't we have talked about this now, and we should acknowledge um, the resistance to the far right, or resistance to fascism in Poland. How has Polish anti-fascism developed over, for example, the last 20 years? Um, is it in a strong position now? How, how do you think it's coping? Um, shall I? Um, well, it, it, like, like in a lot of other places, it kind of started, started as a more subcultural movement. You know, a lot of it came from the punk scene as, as a direct need in Eastern Europe. There was, there was always a very direct need to defend yourself. You're just like punk or, or, or like a metal head or something. There was always a very serious risk of being attacked on the way to the gig or just out when you're, when you're out and about by uh, Nazi skinheads, so this is kind of started as more so, so some more sort of subcultural struggle and uh, quickly developed into more political uh, more political struggle as to where is the anti-fascist movement now I mean you know the uh, the landscape changed a lot and the methods of fighting changed a lot uh, you know obviously 20 years ago, internet wasn't a, a massive factor in in anything really and now it's huge um there is more state surveillance and police became much more competent at much more competent and much better at at, at you know catching people involved in uh, in direct actions and things like that so there was a there was a shift from street based politics um to a certain extent so at the, the as as to whether the movement is strong or not i say it really really depends on the city in poland really depends on 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 the city or on the area there are some cities that have really strong movement and there are some cities that don't have that have pretty weak movement there are some cities that have relatively strong movements it, it really depends in the UK, there's got this chant um, people use all the time, like, you know, uh, who protects the fascists? Police protect the fascists. And it's kind of true in the UK. Uh, the police are kind of protecting the fascists, but also, like, I don't think that the police institutionally are particularly interested in propagating fascism. What is the relationship of, like, the Polish police to the far-right movements if they are more directly uh, interested in connecting, you know, you know catching anti-fascists? Uh, it depends on the group, you know, obviously most of the, you know, football far right is going to be really against the police because obviously of the football. Uh, but if you look into more official groups of far right that we got in Poland, they are very happy to cooperate and, pol- and, po- and the police was always happy, you know, to give them a protection when they're having a speeches. Uh, you know, the, the big thing about the independence march was that they denied Polish prote- uh, the police protection. They said they're going to have their own stewards on the on the march. 
and I think that was one of the main, one of the you know components that brought the football hooligans onto a march because they were like, oh yeah, we're gonna find the leftists and we're gonna find fight the police. <laughs> mm. One of the more kind of complicated uh, things that I think Joe Mulhall talks about in that, that book that Alex was referencing earlier is this uh, the time in which the government basically does its own march in the same place at the same time, seemingly as a way to prevent the far right from doing their march but also seemingly kind of a, an alliance with the far right like how would you describe the relationship of like the the, the government to these the independence march so the previous government the center right one they were trying to be like oh yeah you know you know the independence day doesn't have to be you know all about nationalism it can be you know a bit more let's patriotic. say down to earth patriotic but basically people found it just boring People just were like, well, on the one side, you got like a few hundred people, you know, a few hundred people marching with the flares, flags, music, and the speeches. On the other hand, you got like really boring official march with like laying down the flowers, you know. So most of the people, most of the young people who who want, who, you know, who feel patriotic, they didn't want to go to the official march. They wanted to go to the, to the, you know, to the other one. And, you know, if you look further down into like 2000, when was it, 2019 or 18, basically, you know, the ruling party just marched together with, you know, with the Polish far right, like giving them a wink, like, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we kind of on your side, but not really, but yes, but no, but we're going to give you money, but not tell anyone. I, I think <laughs> I, I would say that uh, it, some elements in Law and Justice Party probably got slightly worried about how popular uh, it was getting, and they're trying to scheme some of that popularity for themselves and and strengthen their electorate. And as their program is very close to the far right in so many points, then it wasn't, you know, it, it was quite a sensible move, if I would say, on the side. You know, it like makes it make it it made sense for them to do that. Yeah, that's the kind of the ambivalent alliance that I was kind of meaning. Like yeah. the, the, it's not it's not really clear. So you were saying that they, they're given money by the, the the government. Is that like a yeah, yeah, or rather by the party, right? Yeah, they they have given money because there are certain elements of the far right in Poland that have been fully co opted into the government, and this is a kind of trade off that they need. They will have access to the money now, basically. You know. I think government is trying to keep them on the side and keep them maybe a bit more civilized this way, but at the same time, right. they, yeah. they they have to give something back to them, which which uh, ends up with you know quite prominent far right personalities being in the government now uh, because of that and having access to like a lot of money and be- people from the movement, people from like the wider far right movement, yeah, absolutely, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so la- for the la- last few years, the marches were like kind of a bit more peaceful, even though there was a counter demonstration that they never like met or there was like officially open conflict on the street, like back in 2011 or 12. Uh, it's, you know, what, what Nesta mentioned, it's a similar tactics that uh, Putin has used in Russia. Uh, they used, you know, in Russia, there used to be thing called Russian March. And it was even bigger than the Polish independent march. It was like happening all across the Russia in different cities. And it was also bringing, you know, all sorts of uh, fire right movements uh, to move throughout the city and cause, you know, like a damage to the, you know, to like 
cars and stuff and to fight with the police. And Putin did exactly the same thing. He basically just bought out some of the, you know, far-right politicians and basically cooperated them into the United Russian Party that, you know, he's the head of. There was there was a situation that uh, those parts of the far-right movement that didn't really want to cooperate with the state have been actually uh, targeted by police raids and things like that. So there was a very clear signal of like, um, you can work with us and it can be everything can be really cool for you. You're going to have money and access to positions and access to power and stuff, or you can go against us and then you're going to, you're going to have problems. And, you know, so they were like, uh, especially autonomous nationalists, basically more Nazi elements were being targeted. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that, there's a kind of, a, there's a way in which the, the, the government, like the government kind of splits the movement. Uh, in a way. Yeah. Also, like, yeah. 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 So this has been a really, really interesting interview. And I, I've actually genuinely, I, you know, I said this quite a lot in interviews, but I do mean it this time. I genuinely learned a lot and it's been really useful for me as well. He also so meant like, it, previous guests. He also meant it the previous times that he said it. It was not just this time, but, he, but I've also learned an enormous amount this time. So don't be offended if you've been on the show and Alex said that he learned a lot. He's not, he wasn't lying then. But yeah, this is, this is really good. Thank you. So thank you, Nestor and Brankowski for coming on. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Any kind of projects you want to highlight specifically that you're involved in right now? Anything, anywhere we should direct our audience to go? Uh, thanks, thanks for thanks for having us. Uh, as for uh, as for us, we well, we have a Twitter account that uh, posts a fair bit of stuff, which is uh, Division One Six One D Y W, and so on, um, and. Uh, but from other uh, from other kind of channels of information, uh, I personally would like to definitely plug one six one crew telegram channel, especially that on telegram you got translate option now, so whatever appears there, you can quite quickly translate on your phone and no excuses have idea, have idea. yeah exactly no excuses have idea what's going on so this is this is on my on my side. Yeah, thank you. And uh, from my side, I would like to point out to the towards the operation solidarity. Uh, this is a wow. you know group of anti-Afro-Ukrainian uh, people in Ukraine who are trying to you know help uh, civilians and arm the anti-Afro-Ukrainian units in Ukraine. Uh, they're doing a really good job and they're cooperating also with lots of Polish anarchists and German ones. That's right. And one more plug from me: uh, you can also give money to I think ABC Dresden, who have been a kind of link as well. So there's multiple ways to give money to get things to Ukraine. Bye, thanks. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. Silver Threads, Still Walking, Still Waking is co-hosted by me, Carla Bergman. And me, Eleanor Goldfield. This is where we interview long-term organizers and radicals about their watershed moments, what they've learned along the way, and how they maintain their hope on this path. Dreaming and building emergent worlds for a present and future anchored in justice and freedom for all. Because there are forks in the road, but they all lead us home to the fight, to the build. Rules.
Subscribe.